A warning to our listeners, this episode contains descriptions of sexual abuse of minors. May not be good for kids to hear this one. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today on the show, we're talking Me Too. We have discussed the Me Too movement a lot on this show. Me Too in politics, Me Too in Hollywood, Me Too in journalism, in NPR's newsroom even. Now we're going to talk about Me Too and sports and the dozens of stories we've been hearing for months of young elite athletes being abused by their coaches and their doctors and their mentors, people they should be able to trust. An explosive new report says USA Swimming covered up hundreds of sexual abuse cases. Today, the U.S. Center for Safe Sport banned a former Olympic taekwondo coach from the sport. The organization found Jean Lopez guilty of sexual misconduct against athletes. In some cases, those athletes were minors. Big shakeup at USA Gymnastics this morning. The CEO, Carrie Perry, is out after just nine months on that job. She was reportedly forced to resign as the organization continues to struggle to recover from the Larry Nasser sex abuse scandal. Larry Nasser, of course, he was a former sports doctor for USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University. He was convicted of sexually assaulting numerous young women under his care. Nasser was recently sentenced to up to 175 years in prison. You can probably recall that trial. More than 150 victims confronted Nasser in public including Olympic medalist Ali Raisman. The reality is you caused me a great deal of physical, mental, and emotional pain. You never healed me. You took advantage of our passions and our dreams. In the wake of Nasser's trial, there have been lots of other stories like that one and lots of other sports. Top officials have been forced out of their jobs for not dealing with reports of sexual assault. And others are under new scrutiny. Today, I'm going to talk with one elite athlete about what it's like to come forward. It has not been easy or fun the last five and a half years of being public with this story. But if it's honest to God, if it stops one person, it's worth it. Bridie Farrell is a former speed skater. She was sexually abused by another skater when she was underage. Before we get to that conversation, I wanted to know what it is about elite sports and elite sports training that makes it all seem ripe for abuse. Alexandra Starr is a reporter who's been covering all of this for NPR and Harper's Magazine. And she says a lot of it has to do with the lack of a single governing body for the Olympic clubs and universities and private gyms that train these athletes. The U.S. does not have a ministry of sport. In England, they have a ministry of sport. They kind of supervise. You know, there's like an entity. In charge. Exactly. And we don't have that. Um, So what's weird, Mm -hmm. right, is that if a kid goes to a school, a university that takes Title IX money, and Mm -hmm. everyone takes Title IX money, they are required, you know, to report on sexual assault cases, to report when a coach has engaged in unethical behavior. You know, they're like regulations on them. That gym, you know, in Atlanta that is known to have like a good gymnastics coach, they really are unregulated. Because they're not part of the U.S. Olympic Committee and they're not a college that takes Title IX funding. That's right. And it also, there was a time USA Gymnastics had a policy that even if, say, a concerned coach said, hey, this guy who runs this gym in North Carolina there's something going on here. Like, I heard him made make inappropriate comments. There 
is correspondence back from USA Gymnastics saying, sorry, unless we get a complaint from a parent or an affected athlete, Mm. we can't do anything about this. They made that decision, right? Yeah, Yeah, that was a choice. That was a choice. So, you know, now the rules on the books at USA Gymnastics are much tougher. Gotcha. You wrote about the U.S. Olympic Committee, the governing bodies that oversee the sports and the club teams and the gyms, this whole system, this whole elite athletic system. You compared it to the Catholic Church and said that patterns in this system resemble those that covered up abuse in the Catholic Church. Explain. So the Catholic Church, I would also include in that some elite private high schools. Mm. These are not institutions. These are not institutions that are under like a Title IX mandate, right? Mm. They didn't have to report. They could do internal investigations. Mm -hmm. And what we have seen over and over again is that those institutions prioritize their reputation over the safety of young people. Mm. It's very sad to say that. But that is the pattern we see. As with the Catholic Church, too. That's right. Yes. And it's also um, in sports, there has been such an effort to cover up. And I'm sure that there are a lot of reasons for that, but I'm sure part of it is this whole marketing element, right? Mm. Like if you kind of see your role as raising money, then this is the last kind of message you want to get out or the last kind of stigma, you know, oh, yeah. that, because you want the next Simone Biles to come to the gym. Yeah. And you want kids to be, you know, super excited about paying their dues to USA Gymnastics. You want those feel good stories, right? This is not a this is the opposite of a feel good story. Yeah. So that is a pattern that has emerged. Yeah. You know, reading up on your writing on this issue in advance of this interview, I started to think a lot about um the coaches that I had in my life as a kid, and I say coaches, I was a band nerd. I was not an athlete. So my coaches were band directors. And I tried to conceptualize my relationship with those band directors. It was inherently different than the relationship between a kid and a coach. Is there something weird or unique about the relationship that coaches have with young athletes that can lead to this certain type of behavior? You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. There's something about coaching? Yes. Okay. Well, and I think particularly in the United States, right, mm. as a coach, you know, this person who sees something in you that you don't see in yourself and making you the best version of whom who you can be, yeah. um, which is just incredibly alluring, right? I think these guys... Oftentimes they don't want to talk to me, but people who see why (laughs) you wonder, right? Um, But people in their ambit describe oftentimes they'll talk about a cult like feeling. Mm. And what oftentimes they'll say is, if you have blind faith in me and you do as I tell you to do, I will make your dreams come true. Mm. And I think particularly because of the allure of the Olympics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like, all right, then tell me what to do and I'll do it. There was this line in your Harper's piece. You wrote, girls are conditioned to think that their bodies belong not to themselves, 
but to the people who promise to lead them to ever more impressive accomplishments. Wow. It's so true, though. And, you know, the way oftentimes this starts is um, they don't pull the girl into a closet and violently rape her. You know, it's... They groom. That's right. And it's gradual. And they groom the families, too. Oh, my God, do they groom the families. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I heard stories of one speed skater, um, Andy Gable, who won a silver medal and... He targeted uh, a woman. Her name is Bridie Farrell, and she's now one a big advocate on behalf of victims in mm-hmm. New York. He made her father his personal doctor, wow. and he took piano lessons from her mom. Wow. Yes, yes. I mean, these guys, like, it, it really is a mindset. So then as someone who has observed these patterns, I'm guessing that there are going to be some listeners to this episode who have kids that might be wanting to be athletes, maybe even gymnasts or swimmers or in Taekwondo. Did you pick up on any patterns that like parents should definitely keep an eye out for, like a thing that they all do that you can see? Yes. What so one thing is if someone comes to you and says, oh, my God, your child is so talented. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to start going to the rink at 5.30 in the morning. But you know what? That's going to be really tough for you. I'll pick her up. Uh, I'll pick her up. Flag. Oh, yes. Hmm. Oh, yes. And hmm. then you actually have to be that hovering parent. I mean, it's supposed sounds... to be the helicopter parent That's right. And they, and they will try to shame you for it. Uh. Right? It'll be like, oh, really? So unnecessary. Uh. They definitely have patterns of behavior. So he helped drive my teammate and I to and from practice, which both of our families really appreciated. Mm. And so Andy would almost pick me up every day and we'd frequently go to the rink and skate. But, you know, sometimes we went other places. But even if we did go to the rink and skate, then there was molestation that happened before and after. I mean, in the rink parking lots, my high school parking lot. That's Bridie Farrell. You heard Alexandra Starr talking about Bridie just a bit ago. After the break, Bridie shares her story with us. We'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over a thousand reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com minute. Hi, I'm Daniel Alarcón, host of NPR's Spanish-language podcast, Radio Ambulante. This week, a year after the earthquakes that devastated the country, Mexico is still dealing with the aftermath. Schools were especially damaged, and the government promised to rebuild them fast. But two journalists discovered that the truth about that reconstruction is much more complicated. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Earlier, we talked with reporter Alexandra Starr about the Me Too movement in sports. And now we're going to hear from elite speed skater Bridie Farrell. Bridie was 15 years old and training to be an Olympic speed skater in New York State. That was when a 33-year-old Olympic medalist named Andy Gable entered her life. He was a skating god, and he quickly became Bridie's mentor and helped the family out. As I said, he used to drive my friend and I home from practice in the summer, and he'd always drop her off first. Then, I mean, I can picture it clear as day, back out of her driveway, go to the end of the street, 
the stop sign, take a right, and you go to my house. And it was like that every time. And then one time at that same stop sign, he took a left. Mm. And he went to the um, a few streets over, and there was a dead end, mm-hmm. which in hindsight, it's interesting that he knew that there was a dead end there. Mm. There was a dead end. He pulled the car over, took off his seatbelt, and he turned to me, and he said, can I kiss you? What did you and think in that moment? I said nothing. I just sat there. Um, I will sit here and honestly say I did not say no. I did not open the door. I did not run away. But I was frozen. Yeah. I mean, I people say there's fight or flight, but there's freeze. Mm. And that's what happened. And I remember after that, when we put our seatbelts on and turned the car around, I remember just being like, like a fog or a, I mean... Now, now we have an expression. I was like, "WTF?" <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and you were like, in shock, probably a hundred percent. And I mean, how would I tell anyone who would believe me? What proof do I have? Why would anyone believe that he would do? You know, I mean, yeah. just um, and it wasn't violent mm. in what we think of as traditional violence. Yeah. So he wasn't a stranger. It wasn't a windowless van. Mm. You know, all that that we pretend to make these people be. So, yeah, that, I mean, honest to God, that is the day my life changed. Wow. It was after practice in the summer. I remember just being sticking to his leather seats. He had a Lexus. Some memories you just can't get out of your brain, and that's certainly one of them. Yeah. He would keep doing this. And mm-hmm. the, did, the, did the contact become more intense? The yeah, so, so a lot of people will say, you know, like, what is... What do I mean when I say molested? So to answer that awkward question, um, Andy and I never had sex in the traditional um, definition of sex, but basically the legal terms is digital penetration. Um, And he would put my hand on himself when he was erect um, and he would touch and fondle me. And I was 15 and he was 33. While Andy is taking advantage of you, is he also, like, getting close to your family at the same time? Yeah. Um, very much so. So uh, he so he had um, a groin issue with skating, and so he saw my father for his doctor for that. And my mom, he came over to the house a couple times and uh, took piano lessons from my mom. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he'd be um, in your house yeah. for a piano lesson from your mother. You knew what he was doing to you. She did not. No. Wow. No. How did that feel? I don't even know. I mean, I think it it was such a time of confusion. And I was so dedicated to wanting to skate that... I didn't have any other currency, you know? I didn't have oh. any anything to barter. I didn't have money. I didn't have um, anything. The only thing that he wanted from me was my prepubescent flat body. Um, and, um, but it was, it's so confusing because like I said, he wasn't violent with me. Yeah. And he 
took care of my skates, which is very, very, very time consuming. Um, your blades, they're not flat. So mm. there's a slight rock to them. Nothing like hockey skates, but there's something. They're not straight. They're bent to go left and they're offset. And so as, especially as a kid like myself gets better and better and better, I mean, the improvement curve is, is yeah. pretty steep as a kid. And so, um, as you're getting better, the, all of those metrics have to change. And for the 1998 Olympic trials, Saratoga Winter Club had a lot of athletes competing. I mean, we sent more people to the Olympic trials than the national training program sent to the Olympic trials. So our coach, who also was volunteer, had a full-time job and a family. Um, he Andy took care of my blades. And I mean, our coach, Andy, and other top skaters were a higher priority. So he helped me out in a lot of ways. My mother said, if you want to go to skating, find a ride to the rink. Huh. And he Andy was my ride. Do Do you think he ever thought that he was your boyfriend? Did you think at 15 that he was like something approaching a boyfriend? I definitely did because I didn't know what else it could be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because he was kind to me. And, and gave me things, um, you know, bought me things, bought me gifts, brought me out to dinner. I mean, so things that seem silly and trivial to someone, like just stop for a second. Mm. I I didn't have a driver's license. Yeah. I couldn't go anywhere. Um, I was mowing lawns in the summer. Oh, wow. That's how I had enough money to offset my skating. My parents put up a lot of money and I had to contribute. Mm-hmm. It's not inappropriate for kids to kiss and fool around and experiment when they're 15 with other 15-year-old kids. Yeah. Right? But so that's what was so confusing about it all also took was part of the reason it took me so long to come forward and talk about it because for so long it it was – and it still is. It's gray. Mm. Look at sex – a grown man with a – a teenager, I knew that was wrong. I don't know if I knew it was mostly the age or the Catholic guilt or yeah. what, but like that I knew, mm-hmm. but it didn't go there. So was I just making this all up? Mm. Two things. One, so again, I was in the 10th grade and that was when we had homecoming dance. Yeah. And I wanted to go with actually my date lived down the street from Andy, one block away. Oh. And um, he said that I could quote, go he'd let me go um so long as as soon as i came home i called him i couldn't go to an after party i couldn't go to anything i had to come directly home and so i told the group of friends i was going with and my date and everyone i said i'm you know i have practice in the morning so i'm just after the dance i'm gonna go home and everyone's like yeah that's cool yeah we figured that that's fine but it was because he was controlling you yeah when i told my parents mom will you pick me up you know the station station wagon uh rolled into the high school parking lot to pick me up and brought me home and no one thought anything of it. And I have one of those memories in my brain of being in my bedroom. I had twin beds in my bedroom and this yellow bedside table between the two of them and this phone was there. And I remember being kind of under the cover so no one could hear me picking up the phone and dialing his phone number and being like, hi, I'm home. One more break right here. When we come back, Bridie tells us what she thinks needs to change in sports. (laughs) 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Netflix and their upcoming film, Hold the Dark, a gripping psychological thriller directed by Jeremy Solnier. Revenge and horror unfold in the treacherous Alaskan wilderness when a retired wolf expert is summoned to investigate a child's disappearance. A riveting examination of human nature and the mysteries of the wilderness. Starring Jeffrey Wright, Alexander Skarsgård, and Riley Keough. Watch the new film, Hold the Dark, September 28th, only on Netflix. Hi, this is Peter Sagal. For 20 years, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me has been making fun of the news with comedians and celebrity guests. We got silly limericks. We got terrible impressions. If you think the news is a joke, wait till you hear our show. New podcast episodes are available every Saturday. For years, Bridie kept the abuse a secret. She says that led to eating disorders and depression and thoughts of suicide. In her 30s, Bridie finally came forward. And after she did that, Andy Gable acknowledged an inappropriate relationship with an unnamed, underage female teammate. In talking about what happened, Bridie says she was shocked at how unsurprised people were. When I sat down with Scott Blackman, the former CEO of the United States Olympic Committee, mm-hmm. And I said, you know, it was Andy Gable. He said, oh, Gabes. As in like he knew. Yeah. Like he just kind of laughed and called him his nickname. And it says a few things. One, that's how well he knew the man who molested me a hundred times. Yeah. That's also his reaction of not being surprised is such an example and it highlights how much Adults at the time were willing to turn turn a, turn a, blind, a eye. blind eye. I mean, you know, something I've I've never shared publicly is so my like I have said many times that my father was his doctor and he had this groin injury. Well, I can remember being in the Saratoga Springs ice rink and a few of the athletes being like, "Oh, so it's not only Dr. Farrell that touches Andy's groin." Oh. Yeah. So that means those guys in the locker room, they knew. if they didn't know, they were suspecting, and nobody did anything. In 2017, the U.S. Olympic Committee opened the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Safe Sport describes itself as a nonprofit committed to ending all forms of abuse in sport. It investigates claims of abuse in elite sports and sports training. And the group keeps a database of known abusers. But Bridie doesn't think that Safe Sport can ever really work. So the Center for Safe Sport, I think it's a good effort. But I think it's misdirected resources, honestly. How um, so? That, in my opinion, the Olympic Committee is about sports and yeah. about building athletes to be champions in their sport. Yeah. Now, that does take the physical strength, which they're good at building, but it also takes the character, which yeah. they could use some work on. Yeah. But they're not, the Olympic Committee shouldn't be the judge and jury. And so of I think, allegations. yeah, of sexual abuse allegations, correct. Yeah. So I think that for true crimes, like these are crimes in our criminal law. Yeah. So like blood doping, right? I, I don't, honestly don't know if that's a criminal law, a, crim, a crime in the criminal sense, but it is within sports. So yeah. we have to um, self-regulate that. Yes. Raping children, molesting children, these kind of things. It's like. A crime. The legal code. Yeah, Outside exactly. of sports. Right? Like, this is just... Yeah. N- yeah. And so we need to stop having uh, sport trying to, to govern that and the Catholic Church trying to govern that mm. and Penn State trying to govern that. Mm. But why don't 
the money and the resources that's going into safe sport, how come that can't go into meaningful lobbying to change the laws across this country mm. and extend the statute of limitation that is protecting pedophiles? Statutes of limitations basically say there's only a certain amount of time after a crime or offense occurs to initiate legal proceedings. There are statutes of limitations surrounding sex crimes. Bridie is actively engaged in lobbying to change those laws. She wants to see statutes of limitations expanded for victims of child sexual abuse so that people like her who were abused in childhood but don't come forward until adulthood, they can still seek legal remedies. I asked Bridie if she thinks this current Me Too moment in sports represents a sea change. She told me it's remarkable to see just how many people have come forward. But she also says there are still a lot of stories out there, and we still need to hear those. If someone sits down and starts to tell you something, just listen. If someone starts to tell you how they're hurting themselves, listen. How they're overtraining, listen. None of us asked for this to happen. And anyone who survived this has no, in my opinion, has no responsibility or duty to be forward in public like this. Um, That's every individual's choice. But you do have the right, and I almost think the need, to get it out. And you can do that by letting someone listen. And like I said, if you're scared to talk to someone else, then just to write it to yourself. It's, you know, when Andy left town, I bought a journal and the first page is, I don't know what to do. There's no one I can talk to. So I bought this journal. Mm. People need to know that there is a place where you can go and share your story because the collection of our stories is what's going to To make change, change these laws. Yeah. Um, So that it's honest to God, so that it's, it's safer for the kid tomorrow. So, yeah. That was speedskater Bridie Farrell. She has a nonprofit that's fighting to change New York State's statute of limitations for survivors of child sexual abuse. It's called NY Loves Kids. Earlier in the show, you heard from investigative journalist Alexandra Starr. She has an article out from a few months ago in Harper's Magazine. It is a very good explainer of how the U.S. Olympic Committee is trying to clean up its act. It's called Pushing the Limit. This week, the show was edited by Jordana Hokeman and produced by Kamari Devarajan and Anjali Sastry. Listeners, we always want to hear from you. Email the show to talk about this episode or pitch us some ideas for other ones. We're at samsanders at npr.org. We're at samsanders at npr.org. As always, thank you for listening. Talk soon. <laughs>